Well, beloved, it's good to be with you this morning and to stand in here at this time for Brother Todd, who's away with family as he's going to be preaching a funeral uh, for Miss Karen's part of her family today. And so I encourage you to lift up our brother as he is away. Um, thankful for Mr. P and being here and leading us, brother. Thank you. I don't see you exactly at the moment. There you are, brother. Thank you. Um, and so we appreciate you guys. If you were with us last week, we we began to realize and wrestle with the reality that the end is coming, right? There's a t- time and sense in which it's coming for all of us, but as specifically as Emily and I and the kids, we began to examine our time here of coming to a close. And I thought it would be wise just to say, how do we, what does a healthy church look like? How do we continue to strive toward that end? And so today we, we continue that. And so talking about those markers of a healthy or a biblically healthy church and Last week, the first one was expositional preaching, where the main point of the passage is the main point of the sermon, and then it's applied to the lives of the people. But we might ask this question, how do we even know if we got the passage's main point right? Well, I think there's several key things, but one of those is, is our beliefs about what the Bible is saying from Genesis to Revelation. It's important that we have a big picture view of what is happening all the way from the beginning to all the way to the end, and somewhere in the midst of that, we'll find our passage. It's impacted by what's coming before it and what's coming after it. And ultimately, all things are culminating in this big story or this one big narrative of what Christ is doing in redeeming and saving us and restoring us back to God. Pastor Bobby Jameson defines sound doctrine as the summary of the Bible's teaching that is both faithful to the Bible and useful for life. I think that last part is so vital. It's not just merely head knowledge, but it is a transformation of the heart that leads to a transformation of our lives. What we believe matters. Consider this. I heard about this recently, and I was a little bit shocked, honestly. It, think of it, it's, it's a small geographic area. It's no bigger than a few square miles, um, but it contains this unusual concentration of large predatory animals. It's actually close to a large city, and what even is more shocking, as I read, is the fact that local people there have been said to allow their children to actually roam free in this area. What might shock you even more is that it is only about 90 miles from where you live. It's the Louisville Zoo. Now, now contemplate that for a moment. When you hear that story at first, right, you're contemplating like, man, there's wild, ferocious, predatory animals, and people are letting their kids be in that area. It's close to a big city. It's close to even us. Like, you start to feel a tension, like, what's wrong with those people? But when you hear the moment, oh, it's the Louisville Zoo, now it begins to make sense. That in some way is shaping us, right? When we come to God's word, we have to realize that the text that we read, the stories that we read, find themselves in the midst of a bigger picture. And if we don't have that framework, if we don't have those understanding of beliefs that hold to us, then we often will misinterpret what the passage is saying. We'll come at it from the wrong end or make the wrong hero of the story. It's important, right? Big pictures matter. And in fact, as we look at the scriptures, right, every passage of scripture is informed by what's coming before it again and what's coming after it. It's important, right, that as we read and preach, as you teach, as you study God's word on your own, that you have these framework, right, these these beliefs that are helping you cage within to say, oh, okay, that's how I should interpret that in light of all that's happening around my passage. You might say, why? Well, because we live in an age, don't we, that People believe to be true whatever their hearts desire to be true. In short, we live in a world in which desire shapes what you believe. 
And since our hearts are evil, then guess what? That often leads us away from God and not to him. The truth is what we matter, what we believe matters. In fact, it's been said the most important things about us are what we know and believe to be true about God. It's been said that the most important things about us are what we know and believe to be true about God. Why? Because only in understanding who God is can we begin to rightly understand who we are. I mean, you can apply that to a myriad of things, right? Whether it's gender or sexuality or marriage, right? Or life and the protection of life. I mean, you could go on and on. Like, we must understand that, guess what? It's not our desires and thoughts that should shape and drive who we are, but instead what God says about us and about himself that should shape and drive our source of truth. You see, church, I want us to see today that sound doctrine is faithful to the Bible's big picture and shapes how we live. Sound doctrine is faithful to the Bible's big picture and shapes how we live. Now, there are uh, any number of ways in which we might come to this idea and this topic of why sound doctrine or the beliefs of the church matter. But one of those things, I think, Acts 17 sets before us a great text that begins to give us a, an idea of how does Paul maybe deal with some of these things? How is Paul shaped by the big picture of the Bible? And what you're going to be shocked to find is, is that in eight verses, eight verses, Paul is going to go from Genesis to Revelation. Let's set the stage for just a moment. Acts 17, beginning verse 22 to 23. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus. All right, this is the, the place you might have heard of. Its Latin name is Mars Hill. This is a famous place, right? You, you've got Athenian and, and, and the Greek gods and the Pantheon and all these things that are there, right? Paul is there in this epic place. And he's standing amongst this Areopagus, and he says to them in verse 22 of Acts 17, there in the New Testament, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul is again there. And he's going to set the stage, right, to say, hey, listen, you guys worship so many gods that you're afraid that you might offend a God that you don't even know about. And so you've got a statue that says that to the unknown God, we don't want you to be offended. So this is your statue. And Paul picks up on that moment. He says, listen, what you don't know, this God I proclaim unto you. And from this, four categories arise. These four truths. Number one. Sound doctrine embraces God as creator. We're going to come to these, right? You don't have to write them down. You get them as we come. But number two. Sound doctrine embraces humanity as fallen. Three, sound doctrine embraces Jesus as our only redeemer. Fourth, sound doctrine embraces Jesus as return, as returning. Listen, so listen, you, you might simply think about it, right? If you've been with us on Wednesday nights, you, you're already ahead of the game. You know how we've been studying, right? The creation, the fall, the redemption, and restoration. These four categories frame the big picture of what's happening in the Bible. So let's look to Acts 17 as Paul, again, points these out. And we come to our first truth. Sound doctrine embraces God as our creator. Pick up, if you would, verses 24 and 25 of Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Again, these temples are surrounding them. Nor... Is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So again, Paul begins where all sound doctrine begins, with God. 
Paul says God made the world. It, it actually has a beginning. This is interesting. Why? Because the Stoics believe that, guess what, everything just exists on its own. But Paul begins from the beginning. He says, listen, look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it. He says, listen, the world has a beginning. That beginning is a God who be, was before the beginning. He's arguing already for the eternality of God, that this God is this self-existent one. He has always been. He is, but he's always been and he always will be. And so, again, Paul says, listen, guys, God made the world. And you might say, well, why is that? Or how could he do it? How does he have the right? Well, listen to what Paul says. There it is. Further in verse 24. Being the Lord of heaven and earth. He says, listen, this God is the Lord of heaven and earth. And because he's the Lord of heaven and earth, guess what he does? He gives life and breath to all mankind. He made everything. Everything that you see and know, God created it. That's the power of God. That's the, the mightiness of God. But guess what? From this very text, and again, right, I mean, Listen, we're just getting snapshots from Paul. So in these moments, you're going to probably want some more. You're like, man, I wish Paul would say a little bit more about this or a little bit more about that. You know why? Because you have a sound doctrine, right? You, you realize there's more than just maybe what's being said in this snippet. You, you know, there's, hey, man, there's more of what Paul said there in Romans. And what about that happened back there in Genesis? And, right, your sound doctrine is going off. It's saying, listen, I, I could frame this even more. That's healthy. That's wise. It's a testimony that by God's grace, you have been around sound teaching. I'm going to come to it at the end, but brothers and sisters, you should take no light thing that your parents brought you to church. If you're here this morning because a friend invited you, you should take no lightness in the fact that you were invited here. Not because there's anything special. As we said last week, the power doesn't rely on the preacher. It relies upon the fact that you're hearing from God himself. It's a humbling thing to consider. But the fact is, church, listen. This God who made the world and everything in it. And listen, he, he, he himself gives to all mankind. In verse 25, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Listen, because God is our creator and our sustainer, then that means we are not our own autonomous creatures. We are made to know and love and worship this God. We are the creature. He is the creator. Look what he says again in verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything it's humbling brace yourself but god doesn't need us it's humbling isn't it i mean the fact is we live in a culture and a world that says that we're the center of our own eternity right we're the we're the main cog we're the we're the most important right we're the key but the truth is right as you study god's word and see it here the reminder is right god doesn't need us that's what he says, as though he needed anything. But listen, the Stoics' worldview, again, Paul's around these guys, and these are the great thinkers of the day. They're always hearing new thoughts. And again, Paul's been preaching about the resurrection in the marketplace, and it's got to them. And they're like, hey, we want to hear this new teaching, this new thought. But listen, the, the, the Stoics, they're often, again, pantheists. So pan is all, and theist is God. All things are God. So guess what that? That means the trees are God, the rocks are God, the animals are God, the sun is God. Maybe even hear that you are God. Yet what do we know about trees or animals or humans or plants or yourself? We all depend upon something else to meet our needs. None of us 
None part of creation is self-sufficient. None of it is self-sustaining. Yet Paul's definition of who this God is, that he is sufficient in and of himself. He has no need of anything else. Thus, to meet Paul's definition of God, all material objects, all people in our universe fall utterly and desperately short. Church, this means that because God is our creator and we are his creatures, that we should submit to his authority. That's why sound doctrine always begins with God. Maybe you contemplate the ways in which this impacts your life. And each, hopefully, application point is going to be something really practical to realize, like, oh, okay, it's not just about we're, we're trying to, right, get more in our head, right? Because, again, some people hear sound doctrine like, man, I don't want to hear that. Let's just get after loving people and get out there. Others of you, you maybe are a little bit more prone. You're like, man, you know what? I love to study God's word, but I had this, this scary tendency at times, Blake, that I feel like my mind's filling up, but my heart's just not as warm. Wherever you land, I hope and pray that each point of application just kind of reminds you of why sound doctrine is a leaping board. Consider this. Sound doctrine impacts our evangelism. I don't know about you, but there was a long period of time in my life that when I began to tell people about Jesus, I always just began with Jesus. But the reality is people are like, well, why do I need him? I mean, he's good for you, Blake. I mean, that's great, man, that you got him, but I don't need him. But if we begin with who God is... This holy God who's created us and we're the creature and we're to give him worship and praise. And the fact is we're not doing that. We're in fact in rebellion against him and, and, and his judgment's coming. Then now when we come to the cross, we're like, give me Christ. But if we begin there, you see what's happening, right? Our sound doctrine, it matters. We must begin with who God is. It impacts evangelism and how we share the gospel. And again, I, so listen, this, this God who's created us, made, he's the Lord of heaven and earth. He made everything. He sustains us. And maybe we wonder, well, what's this say about ourselves? And that's where Paul comes to next. Second truth, sound doctrine embraces humanity as fallen. You say fallen, what do you mean? Like they fell on the steps? No, the, the word fallen, right, indicates what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden, right? That they fell away from God. They rebelled against him when they went to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because God said on the day you eat of it, you will surely what, church? You die. But the enemy still whispers, did God really say that? God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like him. You'll be like God. It's, it's the fall, right? It's, it's the human pride of our hearts. We want to be like God. So listen to this. This sound doctrine embracing humanity has fallen. I'll highlight verse 24 and 25 and then even hit verse 29. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Tell you what, let's just read all the way through verse 29 just for a moment. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of the dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Then this verse 29. Being then God's offspring, the fact that we are created in the image of God, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Notice what humanity does in response to this holy God. Do we worship him and give him praise? No. We form a God of our own. Look at it, verse 29. We form a God of our own imagination. Why? 
Because we want a God that looks like us. We want a God of our own echo chamber, don't we? We want a God that says, you know what? Hey, you know what? That part of my life, it doesn't fit with the scriptures. Let's just chuck that out. I don't, I don't need a God that looks like that. I want a God that loves me and makes me happy and just fulfills my desires. Do you see it? Desires are leading to truth in our culture. But it's God's people. We'd say, no, truth is to shape our desires. And if our desires are contradictory to the truth, then we must repent and acknowledge our sinfulness. But the temptation of our hearts, brothers and sisters, right? I mean, this is Paul some roughly almost 2,000 years ago. The human heart hasn't changed, has it? I mean, it hasn't changed from Genesis 3 to here. Again, we are God's offspring. We're created. And so instead of worshiping God who's given us life, we're rebelling against him and creating gods of our own making. God, because, the, again, the God, the God of the Bible confronts us with our sin when we gaze at the beauty of his holiness. When we see the perfection and holiness of his perfect law, we soon begin to realize that we are separated from God and we can't make it back to him on our own. You see, I think this is one of those reminders of understanding sound doctrine is why we need the aged and mature Christians among us. Talk about this just briefly on Wednesday night, but I want to maybe just reiterate this point just for a moment. Do you realize, right, when you're considering the older and mature Christians among us, some of the bigger things that have shaped my life were Thursday mornings when, when just a few would gather for prayer. And I would be in the presence of women, as some of, maybe many of you know, but some of you won't, of a very godly saint named Celsie Stewart. And Miss Celsie would, would, on Thursday mornings, she would continually pray that, that the words of her mouth and the meditations of her heart, she's praying the psalmist prayer, might be pleasing and acceptable in the sight of God. And she would often begin to confess the ways in which she had failed that. And I remember just being there as a young pastor and hearing this godly lady pray and think, I'm surprised. I see this godly woman. How in the world does she have? I can't believe she's even got, I mean, I know she's a sinner, but like, man, I don't see very much. And I think it's this reminder again of why we desperately need the aged and the mature among us as a church. Because they have come to realize that the closer you get to God, the more you begin to realize the great gap of distance. Don't you feel that? Like, you see this holy God week after week, morning after morning, and you're like, I don't look like that. And it moves you to greater confession and repentance and desperate need of Christ. It's maybe this imagery, right? I mean, you you go and... I don't know if you've ever seen like a mountain range at a distance, and you're like, man, that ain't that impressive. But you give it a few hours. <laughs> and the closer you get, you're like, whoa, daddy. Right? Like I saw that big fan right there. Like, I, sometimes you just don't even, I forget it's there, right? And I look up, I'm like, that's a big fan, right? It's like that with the mountains, isn't it? I mean, like, you're traveling, and you're like, I, sorry, I just totally just derailed many of you. You're like, man, that is a big fan. I wonder what the speed, no, uh, sorry. Back, no, back, sorry, sorry, sorry. Listen. When we see those mountains right from a distance, we're like, man, that's not. But when you get up there close, and that's what it's like walking. The more you walk with Christ, the more time you spend in his presence, you begin to realize the greatness of his God. And the closer you get, the more you find yourself more and more on your knees and on your face. Just humbled by what he has done for you, the way that he loves you, the greatness of his grace and his mercy. You see, the truth is, as we consider our fallen nature and our sinfulness, 
I wonder as we think about how this applies to the church, does this community see a group of believers that are committed to one another? I mean, we've all heard the stories about ugly church splits or divisiveness or pride or how they have these cliques. I was even trying to share the gospel with the gentleman this week and having conversations. And man, some bad things that happened. And the reality is, I'm not sure if I'll ever go back to another church. They've been hurt by what happened, what they saw. I mean, we've got to be guarded. I mean, as a church, right? I mean, bitterness, gossip, slander, those things can tear a church apart. But sound doctrine comes back to remind us that's not who we're called to be. You see, that's why we spend time week after week after week in confession of sin. Why? Because we recognize that sin isn't just a problem for people out there. It's actually a problem for people in here. It's a problem for us, isn't it? It's a problem for me. We need time together just to confess our sins and acknowledge, man, God, we have failed you. We have not abided in the vine. And so we collectively come. But in that beautiful moment of confession of sin together, guess what? It unites us. We're affirming, guess what, as a church, that sound doctrine that we as a church believe everyone is actually a sinner. We're sinners by nature. Yes, it's been passed on to us, but we're also sinners by choice. So we're not surprised when other believers in this room sin against us. We're not surprised or shocked by the fact that our spouses or others or our children or parents let us down or whatever it may be. Why? Because we know that they're sinners like we are. That is an excuse, sin, but listen, it helps us to humbly walk with one another, to recognize sound doctrine. Man, they're sinners. We need to show one another grace and mercy. We need to seek redemption in this relationship. Why? Because that's how God's pursued us. You see, sound doctrine embraces God as creator. Sound doctrine embraces humanity as fallen. And third, right, we might wonder, well, Paul, what's the remedy to this? Well, Paul tells us, I think this third truth, sound doctrine embraces Jesus as our only redeemer. Sound doctrine embraces Jesus as our only redeemer. Look at verse 26 to 28. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Contemplate this, right? I mean, he's talking here about nations, but the reality is there's there's individuals that live amongst nations, right? Let's see how we might press this in a little bit for a moment. So he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of the dwelling place. So God decided when nations would rise and fall, he would decided, hey, this, guess what? Hitler, you will only come this far. These are interpretations we're making in light of these, these passages. That's a sovereign God. That's a, that's a mighty God. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of the dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. It's despite, right? It's startling. Despite our sinfulness, Paul says that God still, still what? He desires a relationship with us. Did you hear that? God, in, in, in his, his, his perfect wisdom and almighty power and decreeing of when nations would rise and fall and even decreeing when you would be born in the day of your death all of these things why or what end are they look what he says verse 27 that they should seek god and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him that despite god's holiness and our sinful rebellion paul says god still desires to be in a relationship with us who is this god I mean, contemplate for a moment. Who have you written off? 
because of what they did to you or did to your family or how they passed over your child for that opportunity. And then think about the magnitude of what we have done toward God. And yet he desires that we should still seek him and find him and know him in relationship. Maybe we just ask, well, how? How might we seek God? Maybe you hear that and you see and you've heard just in this small glimpse of God's holiness and your sinful separation from him. And maybe you feel the weight of that. And and the fact is, Paul's going to say in a moment, there's a day of judgment coming and you start feeling that. And and it starts that truth starts pressing in on you and it feels suffocating. And you wonder, like, what's going to happen to me when I die? Where am I going to spend eternity? Is there any hope for me? That's what he says. Verse 29 and 30. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Listen to this. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. To turn from these sinful ways. To stop worshiping the things of the world. To stop pursuing the pleasure of the world and to look to God and to look to God. Why? Because of what he has done for us in Christ. I mean, Paul's going to just give us a small glimpse at the end of verse 31, speaking about the resurrection. But to say that there's one who has come, right, who's come. And guess what? He's, he's perfectly image God. I mean, imagine that for a moment, right? I mean, if someone goes out there and they're supposed to be your image bearer, your representative, and, man, they tarnish your name and they, re, they, just, they, they lie and they cheat, they steal, and they're representing you. And everybody's like, well, that's, I didn't know they were like that, but evidently they are. Can you imagine how you would feel? You say, that's not who I am. That's not my character. That's not my nature. But we are God's image bearers. So when we do these things, then we're testifying to the world. That's who God is. Brothers and sisters, that brings a holy wrath of God upon us. But the gospel says that there was a man that God sent. The God man. Who came and guess what he did? He perfectly imaged and honored God. He loved God perfectly and loved one another perfectly. He had no sin of his own. That humanity was fallen. That's why we're celebrating so much at Christmas, right? The virgin birth. He has no sin of his own, no sin nature. He's born and conceived of the Holy Spirit, so he's not like us in that way. And he lives the sinless life, and therefore he can go to the cross. He can die as a lamb of God. Guess what? Taking our sin, not his own. Paying the judgment of God, being the perfect image bearer that you and I, by grace through faith, by grace, by grace, sweet, amazing grace, you can stand before God with his image over your life because he stood before God with your image over him. It's the great substitution of Christ dying in our place. That's the beauty of this. You see, as you think about sound doctrine, I, maybe you would think about it like when, if you've ever gone bowling, right? I mean, when you go bowling, right, the aim is to hit the pins, right? I'm not very good at it, um, but that's the aim is to hit the pins, right? And, and so guess what? As we come to study God's word, we're, we're thinking, man, these areas of who God is and humanity's sinfulness and Christ is our redeemer. And as we're going to see just one more in a moment, the, these and other things help us. They're like aiming markers to say, man, every time I think about God's word or as I study God's word, these things are shaping, they're informing me. But they're also in some way, I, I don't know about you, but I, 
I like to bowl with my kids. You know why? Because sometimes they get the bumpers on. And that means that they got bumpers right now. Some of those places are fancy. They go down for the other person, whatever. I'm just always like, hey, leave them up for me. Sound doctrine is like a bumper, right? Because the moment we get a little bit off course, God's word is there to steer us back. Now, guess what? God usually uses godly men and women. It might be a godly friend. It might be a godly parent or grandparent that may tell you, you don't want to hear it. You're like, shut up, dad. I don't want to hear that from you. That friend, like, who do you think you are? You think you're better than me? Beloved, if our heart of love for them, as we share this gospel, we're hoping to share that truth, right? You hear it in your Sunday school class. It's, it's helping you. you. That's why you're gathering with other believers right now. But in your Sunday school class or, or in your community group, right, the word is central. Why? Because it's acting like guardrails. And other believers are there to say, man, I, I don't know if that's necessarily how we should look at this. Let's consider it maybe from this perspective for a moment. So, again, sound doctrine is in some way helping shape and guard us and protect us. Maybe we might think about this light of application. How often when you sing, and Mr. P said it earlier, right, I think he's reading my notes, or I, Right? When you come to church, how often do you contemplate or think about the words of the songs we're singing? Or do you wonder about, right, that, hey, listen, is what the pastor's preaching or the Sunday school teacher's teaching is actually true? Are you listening to the prayers being offered? Maybe in short, did it matter to you this morning that what we sang or what we said is actually true? You see, I think the temptation is, is we often, like, we want to celebrate the wrong things. We want to rejoice in the wrong things. We want to rest in the wrong things. But when we come here as a church, right, what we sing matters because we realize it's shaping the hearts and minds of the people. Emotions are good things, but if our aim is simply to create an emotional experience for you, then it flips the object of worship. You become central instead of God. Again, emotions are good things. And I hope and pray that as you sing and you're contemplating the words that you're singing or, or what you're hearing, it's like moving your heart. Like, oh, man, as you hear, I'm telling you, one of my favorite things is to hear you guys sing. To hear other believers in this room singing. It is just like one of that affirmation of like, man, this is true. Like, rest in this, cherish this, embrace this. So again, Sound doctrine, right? It impacts everything, right? Whether it's our evangelism or whether it's our prayers or whether it's our singing. Maybe you wonder, well, Blake, where does all this lead? And that brings us to our fourth and last category where Paul kind of closes out. Sound doctrine embraces Jesus as returning. Sound doctrine embraces Jesus as returning. So, again, you've heard this progression. The creation, the fall the redemption of Christ, and now the return of Christ, or the new creation, this restoration that's coming. Look at what happens, verse 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because. Hear this. This is God's word. Hear God's word today. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Hear that again. Maybe Maybe just make it a little bit more palatable palatable to your own soul for a moment. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge me in righteousness. Paul says, how has this happened? It's by a man whom he has appointed. Who is this man? 
Of this, he has a given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The affirmation, guess what? That you're going to be judged is the fact that Christ himself was raised. It testifies the fact that there is eternity coming. It'll be either eternity in the presence of God, not because you and I are good, right? Because we acknowledge that we're sinful. He is holy, but we have come and trusted in that blessed Redeemer, right? What a name it, what name of Christ, the blood of Christ, his life in our place. Or the opposite is true. You have heard this very day that the God who created you is holy and mighty and good, and you, as his creature, are to image him, but you have failed just like everyone else around you. But instead of looking to the only way of redemption, you're neglecting that and saying, I don't need that. I'm not as weak as that. I'll make it there on my own. Did you hear the way in which he is going to judge you and I? In righteousness, in perfect holiness to this word. As James says, that the one who stumbles at even one point of the law is guilty of what? Breaking all of it. You're condemned. You're guilty. Listen to me. It's like a bridge that's out. It's foolish nonsense. You're deceived. You're believing a lie. Don't do it. Christ is the only one who can redeem your soul. He's the only one. Please. Please, I'm begging you, please, do not reject the blessed Lamb of God. Judgment's coming. Hebrews 9 and 27, man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Again, this, this, this man that he sent, he's no normal man. No normal man comes back from the dead. This is the Son of God, the Lamb of God. You see, as we contemplate the fact that there's going to come a day of judgment, and for those of us who are in Christ, this is the hope that we have of eternal life. We're in some way contemplating our own exodus, aren't we? And speaking of the exodus, in some way, I mean, I was just reading this week, and just this reminder, like, man, the entire Bible is in some way the story of the exodus. I mean, listen to this. Pastor Tim Keller, as he writes, and he says, consider that the great Passover lamb, right, everything changes when the, the Lamb of God, right, comes. But imagine this. Imagine that you were in Egypt after that first Passover, and you're talking to an Israelite. And you ask them, you say, hey, hey, who are you and what's happening here? They might respond with something like this. I was a slave under the sentence of death. But I took shelter under the blood of the Lamb and escaped that bondage. And now God lives in our midst, and we are following him to the promised land. Doesn't that sound almost exactly like what we would say? I was a slave. I was in bondage. I couldn't free myself, but I, I, I took refuge under the blood of the Lamb. And now God's living in me. And I'm following Christ with the church to the promised land. You see, in some way, how the Exodus is shaping all of who we are. You see, church, it's as we talk about this holiness of God... 1 John 3 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Now listen to this, verse 3 of 1 John 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. John says that as you hope toward the day of Christ's return, it is actually transforming you. 
because of the fact John says that we will be like him on the last day, we long to be like him today. Did you hear that? Because we long to be like him on the last day and the fact that we will be like him on that last day. It transforms us to want to be like him today. Do you see how sound doctrine impacts your life? It impacts your holiness and your godliness. It urges you and I to live a holy and godly life. To the non-believer this morning, have you heard who this creator God is? He's your creator. He's perfect and holy. And the truth is, just like the men, the Moazis men, the greatest thinkers of the Areopagus there on Mars Hill at this great point in history, where all these elite thinkers are gathering and, and discussing all these different topics and thoughts. Paul says that despite their great thought, thoughts and knowledge and all their wisdom and on and on, whatever, the truth is they're a sinner. Just like you and just like me. And the only hope that they have is that there is a redeemer who came and gave his life in their place. A lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John the Baptist says. This morning, would you? Do the very thing that Paul says, but now he commands. Listen, it's the times of ignorance God overlooked, the foolish way of life, the rejecting of the gospel. This, listen, this could be this this could be the anthem of God to you this morning. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That includes you and includes me. Will you do it? Will you respond to this gospel that you might be filled with the Holy Spirit, forgiven of all your sins? And being with God forever. To the church this morning. Again, we've practically highlighted different ways in which sound doctrine impacts the way we live. It impacts our evangelism, the way we share the gospel, right? We, we have to share who God is and that we're sinners and that Christ is a redeemer. And letting them know there's a judgment to come and that Christ is the one who restores us. We've acknowledged how sound doctrine impacts the way we pray. Every week we, we pause during this service to spend time in confession of sin. Sound doctrine influences the songs we sing. We think through, what do these words say? Are, are these words faithful to Scripture? Are they saying as clear as we can? And how might they impact our people? Sound doctrine impacts us in the way we live, our holiness. The return of Christ compels us to live differently. But I think also in light of last week, and I pray future weeks, we ought to ask maybe these, these three questions. In light of sound doctrine, where have we been? Where are we? And where are we going? Where have we been? Well, guess what? We're in a church that affirms the Baptist faith and message 2000. In fact, you are in a church that has over 200 years of church history, 200 years of sound doctrine that has shaped what we believe and hold to. This wasn't original to ourselves. Thus, and I, I, I said a little bit earlier, but if it was your parents or your grandparents or some of you may have great grandparents or beyond that brought you into this church that is a teaching and affirming these truths, that is no small thing. You ought to praise God for that heritage. And you say, maybe some of you say, well, you know, Blake, I, I didn't have that, man. Then all the same, praise God that he has allowed you to come and to hear these blessed truths. However, God organized and led your way here. I do wonder, though, how important is it for you to pass on to your children and grandchildren these sacred truths. So that's where we've been. Where are we? I think, again, we, we've already mentioned it some, but, man, each time we gather as a body, we're, we're thinking through how does this shape our congregation, right? And so guess what? That shapes how our services look, right, each week. It's typically you're hearing Mark come up and give a, a prayer of praise. He's just starting out praising God for who he is as creator. And then 
Guess what? Often it's Adam coming forward and leading us in a time of confession, acknowledging our sin. And then that comes that time of, of the pastoral prayer where we're giving God praise and we're praying for one another. Why? Because Christ has redeemed us and he's transforming us. And we're praying that for others and hoping that. And then comes this final prayer, often at the end of the sermon, where we're just giving God thanks. Like all of these things are, are shaping us and it shapes our service. And But guess what? This is sound doctrine. It shapes us, our missions and Everything, the centrality of the word, that's where we are. And we also ought to ask, where are we going? Well, one of the things we're working with right now is to revise our church covenant and just continually trying to say, hey, man, how can we shape more and more how it it guides and forms who we are and informs our gathering? But I think in light of where the church is headed next, I think it's absolutely vital that as you think about sound doctrine and who will stand next in this pulpit week after week proclaiming the gospel, Hear Paul's words to Timothy. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It's not just simply about them. What they say and preach will impact your soul and the souls of all those around you. This is no small matter. Therefore, in response, those that will be a part of that committee looking for the next pastor, it is absolutely central that the church considers their life and their doctrine. Those that are on that team should be those who have lived holy and godly lives. Those who are holding fast to this sound doctrine. Why? Because that's the way in which they're going to know those who are coming in. And they need to ask hard questions. Pastor, tell us who God is. Pastor, tell us about man's fallen sinful nature. Pastor, tell us what you believe about the redemption. Pastor, tell us what you believe about the restoration, new creation. Those are no small things. It will shape every sermon they preach every Wednesday night. It will shape how they think and they lead and they go. These things matter. They matter. So I hope and pray by hearing them, it is helping prepare your heart and mind to think, man, this is no small matter what's coming. Let us pray and fast and cry out to God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. For it stands true in the heavens. Thank you, God. That this word is not the word of man, but the word of God. We thank you, Lord, that you are not like us, but you are holy and perfect and righteous. You are the creator. We are your creatures. We humbly bow because your authority and your kingship and your sovereignty and your lordship We submit, Lord. It's not our desires that will shape us, but instead your truth. Yet, Father, in the midst of our sin, you still desire that we would seek you. And the good news is you came for us when we would never come back for you. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Thank you for his sinless life. Thank you that he is the Lamb of God who has taken away our sin and led us out of slavery and bondage. And, Father, we thank you and we rejoice in the fact that there is a new creation coming. And, Lord, the foretaste of that is the fact that we are indwelt by your Spirit, and little by little, you are shaping and forming each of us who are in Christ to the image of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. I pray that these words will settle on the hearts and minds of this congregation for years and years to come, and they will pass them along to others, not because, Lord, I pray, not because it's the word of any man, but because of what it truly is, the Word of God. I love you, Lord. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.